Oh, let's bow together. Father, you are the one who lifts our head. You are the one who pulled us out of the pit of sin and darkness and death by sending your son Jesus to pay the penalty for our sins. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you for your son Jesus. And Father, thank you for this opportunity to continue to worship you and praise you and declare your excellencies. And I pray that you prepare our hearts. I pray for those who don't know you, you'd break those stony hearts and open them up that they might respond to your glorious, wonderful truth. And Lord, for those of us who know you, may we grow in the grace and knowledge of your Son. We ask you to bless your word as it goes out now, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the evangelical church has gone through quite a paradigm shift in the last 30 or so years. Uh, Back then, 30 or so years ago, the term evangelical was synonymous with true believers, those who were solid in the faith, those who, who loved the Lord Jesus Christ, who were, who were born again uh, through the living and abiding Word of God, the truth concerning Jesus, those who were saved and wanted to be in the Word of God. The term evangelical was synonymous with that in light of all of the other uh, dead denominations. But sadly, over time, the term has become diluted um, as many churches who call themselves evangelical churches now seem to emphasize uh, the, those who come in rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, I was taught in seminary that we should tailor the services and our messages to the felt needs of the congregation. Now, on the surface, does that sound okay? Well, it sounds sort of okay, but really, if you think of Scripture, that's not the way the church is to function Because we, in our own understanding, don't really know what we need. What we feel often is not what we truly need. And you see, we are not to lean on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge him and he will make our path straight. And so you can go into many churches these days who will address what you feel you need. You see that in the way the music is done. You see that in the way the preaching and teaching is done. You see that addressing of your needs. But what is it that we really need? I'm so thankful that the scripture does not leave us in the dark concerning what we as true believers really need. Now today we're going to see that specifically exactly what we really need. And we're going to see that God is through his grace and his peace is what we truly need in our lives every single day. Now we're starting a new series today and some astute uh, uh, biblical uh, uh, Men and women last week said, hey, hmm, are you doing Philippians? When I went through uh, Acts chapter 16 last week, and I kind of smiled, but I didn't say yes or no. But yes, we're going through the book of Philippians, and that's why I shared that last week. So would you turn your Bibles to the book of Philippians, and we're going to be looking today at verses 1 and 2. Now, I want to review the context to the book. Uh, Obviously, last week we went through the founding of the church in Acts chapter, the latter portion of 15 and chapter 16. And you can listen to that CD. I'm not going to spend the whole time going through that. But I do want to review how this church was founded. Well, we know with that in mind, uh, the first verse reveals that the Apostle Paul is the author. And he is writing this letter to believers who are in Philippi. And he is writing this book while he is imprisoned. He mentions that three times in the book, in, actually in first, cha- first chapter alone. And there are different theories Uh, historically speaking, concerning which imprisonment this was for the Apostle Paul. But uh, the traditional view, really backed by the biblical evidence, I believe, is that Paul was under house arrest in Rome. 
Indeed, in chapter 4, verse 22, we have a greeting from Caesar's household. And then in chapter 1, we have this amazing statement. Look at verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Now we know that Acts 28 reveals that the Apostle Paul was under house arrest for two years in Rome, most likely sometime between 60-61 A.D. to 63 A.D. And uh, within that, we see the various references to him being chained to a Roman guard 24-7, and one of those of Caesar's household. And this letter is one of four in which we call uh, the prison epistles, Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians, Philemon, written approximately around 62 A.D., And now in Acts chapter 16, as we saw last week, we have the amazing description of the founding of the church at Philippi 10 years earlier, around 52 A.D. And remember, that was only about 20 years after the day of Pentecost. And so we have uh, this wonderful portion in Acts chapter 16. Now you might remember that Paul, Silas, and Timothy were on Paul's second missionary journey where the Lord led them through godly desires, conflict, and having come to the east, they were kept from going to Asia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And then they were not allowed to go up to the north uh, west uh, to Turkey. They were trying to go to Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. We saw this last week. And God ultimately led them from Paul's initial desire to go back to the cities he had gone on his first missionary journey to go to the point to be at Troas, a port city on the uh, east, western side of, uh, of Asia, in Asia Minor. And it's at that point uh, he receives a vision to share the gospel to those in Macedonia, those in Europe. And so he and his companions crossed over uh, to the, 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 the Aegean Sea to Philippi. And then we have the account, which we looked at last week, of the first European converts in Acts chapter 16. Why don't you turn there for a second, and I want to read a portion of that again. And again, we went through this last week, so feel free to grab a CD, and it gives a lot of information on the, on the beginning of the church. Hopefully you were blessed by that wonderful account, which we're going to summarize today. Acts chapter 16, and look at verse 12. And from there to Philippi, uh, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying on the city for some days, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the river, to a riverside, where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. And you might remember that they didn't have enough, obviously, for a synagogue, so they would meet at the river, and it was just some women, some women who feared the Lord. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Remember, he had concluded that the Lord wanted them to speak the gospel in Macedonia. And so the Lord opened her heart. Now, when we share the gospel to you, the Lord opens hearts. It's your, it's your response at that point as you're convicted by the word of God, whether you're going to respond and believe in the truth of God. But the Lord opened her heart. I pray you don't close it after he opens it. The Lord opened her heart, and she did respond. And it says, 
But the thing spoken by Paul, and when she and her household had been baptized, that's an outward uh, sign of, of an inward change. They were being obedient to the truth. They, they identified now with Jesus Christ, having been placed into the body of Christ, now showing that outwardly. He says that, it says, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So we see Lydia, Lydia and her household as the first converts in, in Europe and in, in Philippi. And then we have the tremendous true story of what happened to Paul and Silas. And you might remember Dr. Luke came on in, in Troas, and yet he's a Gentile, so he isn't involved. He isn't arrested in this scene. It's just Paul and Silas who are Jews, and, and we'll find out later, actually they're Roman citizens, but those uh, in Philippi didn't know that. Uh, Acts chapter 16, verse 16, and let's just read through this. And it happened that as we were going to that place of prayer, a certain slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling, following after Paul and us. And she kept, she kept crying out saying, these men are bond servants of the most high God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Now that sounds pretty good. You have a demonic possessed girl who is saying, these guys are proclaiming the way of salvation. They're the ones. You have Satan's tactics initially is to associate with the truth, with error, right? To bring in and associate the slave girl. To, to, and Paul would have nothing of that, as we're going to see. And notice what he says. And she continued doing this daily for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And at that very moment, and it came out of her at that very moment, but when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, now she was the demon possessed. She was able to predict future stuff, whatever it might be. She's like a fortune teller, like you see in those little things, like in Portland, those little places you drive by, fortune teller, whatever it is. Uh, this lady's demon possessed and she's making money for her masters. The demons are helping her. Demon gets cast out, no more money, right? And they get upset, okay? They get upset. And what do they say here? And But when her master saw their hope for profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas. Notice they didn't seize Luke because earlier he said us. They didn't seize Luke. Luke is a Greek. He's a, he, and they dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, remember this is a Roman colony. This is a Roman colony that had the privileges of Rome um, and Roman citizenship. When they brought them uh, before the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, you see? Okay, that's Paul and Silas. And we are proclaiming customs which are not, is not lawful for us to accept or observe, being Romans. And the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them, and they proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet into stocks. Now, again, Paul and Silas have been beaten here for sharing the gospel. Obviously, those, and they've been falsely accused, thrown into prison because they're Jews, not having the rights of Romans, at least they think right now, at least the, the people who threw them in there. Later on in the end of the chapter, we see that they are Romans and they do have rights. But here, notice what they do. Notice what they do in the middle of the night. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were what? Praying and singing hymns of praise to the prisoners. No, to God. To God. 
These are true believers who understand God's sovereignty in the situations, that God led them there and that everything that happens to them when they are following the Lord, God is sovereign over. He's going to use it for good and they're praising him. They've been beaten, bloodied. Their wounds, we'll see later on, the jailer will clean them up. They've been beaten and they are singing praises to God and praying. This is an attitude of a believer who is seeing things rightly, who is seeing things rightly in the midst of great difficulty. Great difficulty, and this has an effect on those around. And the prisoners were listening to them, verse 26. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. This is amazing. And when the jailer had been roused out of his sleep and had seen the, seen the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and fell, fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He had obviously, being in the prison there, you know, they would have Roman prisons, the prison guard would have a house on top, the prison would be below in that sense. Obviously had heard them singing praises to God and praying. Obviously had heard the truth. He knew he needed to be saved. What must I do to be saved? And the answer is, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved in all your household. And notice, uh, the Apostle Paul follows up with the truth of God. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him. They, they, they shared the truth of the Lord to him together with those who were in his house. And he took them that very hour in the night and washed their wounds. You could see the change. And immediately he was baptized. He's wanting to identify with Jesus Christ in obedience. And he and his whole household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly. Salvation brings true joy. It brings joy. It brings joy. Sin brings sorrow. Salvation brings joy. Having believed in God with his whole household. And here we have the tremendous founding of the Philippian church. Some women who want to worship the Lord, not knowing who the Lord really is yet, not knowing they needed forgiveness of sins, but then hearing the truth and responding. And then this Philippian jailer and his household we have the church of Philippi founded. Praise the Lord. Now with this in mind, as we begin our study of Philippians, it's very important to realize that the Apostle Paul and this church were very close. Very, obviously they would be. Uh, the Apostle Paul was, had the privilege of, of sharing the truth of God that they responded to and, and came to faith. And the Apostle Paul is very close to this church and they were close to him. Indeed, they alone had supported him when he went to Thessalonica. In fact, 2 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9, and Philippians 4, 15 through 18, we see the Philippians, or the Macedonians, Philippians, same area, had sent gifts to Paul's support for, uh, for the ministry on multiple occasions. And they were poor. The Macedonians were poor, and they were gracious to send gifts to Paul. And the Apostle Paul was very close to them, and they were close to him. And now at the time of this writing, the church has been around for about 10 years, and Paul is under house arrest in Rome. And within that, we see the Apostle Paul writing a letter to this church, the Philippian church. Now, uh, from the book itself, we have some internal reasons why the Apostle Paul wrote this book. 
Uh, you see in chapter 4 that he desires to sh- thank them for their gracious gifts. We also see that there was certainly a disagreement between some women earlier in chapter 4, Yudia and Syndiki, that needed to be addressed. And we see also that within the church, Paul needed to remind them again, chapter 3, of the dangers. I consider it right to remind you of these things. And certainly there were threats to unity, chapter 2. And Paul also needed to inform them about Epaphroditus and his state. They were concerned about him. They were concerned about him. And within this, we see it as an encouraging letter. It's a letter that how true believers should function in the context of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And within that, that should bring joy. So much so we should rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. Now, if we look closely at this letter, we see this letter is about a relationship with Jesus Christ. The term in Christ or Christ is, Christ is mentioned over 37 times in this short epistle. In chapter 1, we see to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's all about Christ. He is our life. In chapter 2, he is our perfect example of obedient humility who took on human flesh and died for us, the suffering servant who is the Lord of all, who will receive praise and honor from every person, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. We see in chapter 3 that he is our focus. He is everything. Gaining and knowing him and becoming like him is everything. And we press on towards that tremendous goal in Jesus Christ. We see in chapter 4, that was 3, chapter 4, that we are to stand firm in him. And through him and in him we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. He is our, it's his peace that will guard our hearts. He is the God of all peace. And he is the one who strengthens us. He is the one who will supply all of our needs in the context of Christ Jesus. He is our strength and our supply. And so if we look at this letter Rightly, we're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ and what he is. So I want to encourage you not to look at this letter through the lenses of your own understanding, but to allow God by his spirit to inform our hearts concerning what he intended. And so with this in mind, we see we have everything we need concerning our relationship with the Lord. We have a great and wonderful Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, what is it that we truly need as believers? What do we need The Apostle Paul starts out, I believe, sharing this. Verse 1 of chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What we're going to see today, I believe, what we really need is to recognize our great privilege in the Lord to understand our grand position in Christ, and to rest in his great provision. I believe that's what we're going to see today. So first of all, what do we really need? First of all, we need to understand our great privilege. We are actually bondservants of the living God, bondservants of Christ. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. Here we have the letter uh, addressed initially, the, the sender, Paul and Timothy. 
Now, we need to be careful that we don't ascribe the writing of this letter to Timothy. It is not Paul and Timothy writing this later, letter. Later on, we're going to see it's the Apostle Paul himself that is telling them what they need to understand inspired by the Spirit. Here in this greeting, it is Paul with his companion Timothy greeting them in the context of what's going on. Now, what do we know about the Apostle Paul? He certainly is an apostle, but yet he doesn't need to say that here, does he? This church is not in rebellion towards him. There's not false teachers that are actively turning their hearts, yet they need to be watching out. They need to be reminded. But they have a good relationship. They understand his authority as an apostle. Not like other letters where he needs to say, Paul, an apostle. Here, he doesn't need to say that at all. He doesn't need to say that at all. He's an apostle, but he just says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. And then we have, along with Paul, we have Timothy. And we need to know a little bit about Timothy, and we're going to learn a lot more in chapter 2. But who is Timothy? Well, we saw him back in Acts chapter 16, didn't we? we it, and that portion reveals he was a native of either Lystra or Derby, two little towns in the area of Galatia. We know from Second Timothy, his mother uh, was a Jew by the name of Eunice, his grandmother Lois, and his father was a Greek. Um, having not been circumcised until he journeyed with Paul, uh, probably indicated he was raised under Greek culture. And we know that he was educated informally by his mother and his grandmother where he learned the truth, the scriptures that are able to lead one to salvation, chapter uh, 3 of Second Timothy. And we also know within that that he came to Christ and that by the time the Apostle Paul came upon him in that second missionary journey, as we saw in Acts 16, he was of such proven worth He was one who was dependable, and Paul desired to take him with him. And he did. He did. And I don't think we recognize how extensively Timothy was a part of the Apostle Paul's life. Paul speaks of him in Scripture as his son in the Lord, son in the faith, true child, his brother, his co-worker, his fellow servant, and fellow slave. He was with Paul in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, Ephesus, and He is with him in Rome here as Paul writes this letter. He is associated with Paul in the writing of some of his epistles, such as 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 2 Corinthians, Colossians, Philippians. And when Paul wrote to the Romans, Timothy was there as well. He was of proven worth and great use. He was willing to do anything the apostle Paul wanted him to do in the Lord. And that's a unique quality. Look at chapter 2 of Philippians, verse 19. Chapter 2, verse verse 19 of Philippians. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. I'm going to send him to find out how you're doing, and I think it's going to be good, and I'll be encouraged. That's what he's saying. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. What a statement is that? This guy, is he, I know he'll be concerned about your spiritual welfare. I have no one else. Timothy. He says, For they all seek after their own interests, not of those of Christ Jesus. That's the key, by the way. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel, and like a, like a child serving his father. This is a tremendous statement concerning Timothy, a faithful man who served Paul faithfully, Serving Christ. Serving Christ. 
You see, when you serve those God places in your life, there is authority in the church, by the way. Apostle Paul, there's authority there. When you serve, it's serving Christ. And he served Paul in that manner, and he had proven worth. And the Philippians knew him also because he had been there from the very beginning. And he had become within that Paul's spiritual protege. We'll see that later on in First and Second Timothy. Now getting back to chapter 1 in our text. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to the saints, all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in, in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. So what can we learn from this simple introduction? We could read past it real quick and miss a lot of really good stuff. But here we see, first of all, as I mentioned before, he doesn't need to share he's an apostle. He's, his authority is secure with the Philippians. And notice what he says. He, he chooses specific words inspired by the Spirit to describe himself. If you were to write someone else and you wanted to describe yourself to them, spiritually speaking, what would you say? Uh, Greg and Hillary, so-and-so of what, right? What would you say? Would you say, well, he, inspired by the Spirit, here says, bondservants of Christ Jesus. Now, I know if you're like me, and I think you are, because we're all human, we're all sinful, that when we hear this word slave or bondservant, even in the context of Scripture, we go, ooh, I don't like this idea of being someone's slave. We naturally revolt to that, I believe, and we need to get over the reality of that, uh, that temptation because this is totally different, as we're going to say. Because your master is the one that makes all the difference when you're a slave. Okay? So he says here, bondservants of Christ Jesus. Now, uh, one pastor wrote about this term doulos, this term servant. He said in Paul's Greco-Roman context, it referred to a class of people who were at the bottom of the social order. They became slaves, for example, through, through war or debt or capital convictions or simply being born, into, born by a slave mother. In any case, there were slave dealers who acquired them and sold them as property. Slaves had no rights, privileges, or freedoms in any sphere of society outside of the family to which they belonged, uh, though some of, them inclu- inc- some of them included doctors and accountants and were more educated than their owners. But with this background, the Apostle Paul uses this to indicate that he and Timothy are bond slaves or servants or doulos of Christ Jesus, that they were owned by Christ, being bound over to him to do his will and his will only. You see, we're seen in Scripture throughout described as bond servants of the Lord, as douloses, slaves, those who are held over to do his will. That's what we are described. And we see very clearly that to be a slave, you need to be purchased or bought or, or, or taken possession of from a master, right? And when did that happen for us? When did, when did the Lord take possession of us? You see, we were in rebellion when we were born. We were in our sins, doing our own will. We could care less about what God said unless it benefited us. We were in rebellion. And yet there was a time, if you're a true believer, where God took possession of you in a relationship Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We see how it was done. There was a price paid. There was a purchase price paid to buy us. To buy us from the slave market of sin into being slaves of a wonderful master who gave himself for us. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 17. And if you address the Father as one who impartially judges according to each man's work, 
Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth, knowing that you were not redeemed, that's the price paid, uh, from per, per, with perishable things like gold or silver from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. That's our sinful way that was empty and, and, and vain. But with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last days, last times, for the sake of you. You see, Jesus Christ paid the price to purchase us from our sinful life, to bring life for us, to purchase us, to buy us, to redeem us from our futile way of life inherited from our forefathers, from our sins. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9, the Apostle Paul has to remind the Corinthian believers that they are not their own. They are not their own. They are not their own masters. Um, or do you not know that you, your body is the holy, temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 16, 9, who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price? Therefore glorify the Lord with your body. Paul and Timothy were bond slaves of Christ Jesus in the sense that they were owned by Christ. They had been purchased through his death on the cross and they had been bound over to do his will and his will only. They recognized they were bond slaves of Christ and they had surrendered their wills to the authority and will of their master. You see, we have this problem where we don't surrender our wills. We want to do our own thing. And guess what? If it has to do with sin, and it doesn't have to do with Christ, there is bondage. You see, sin brings death. Sin brings bondage. And we were bond slaves to someone else. We were bond slaves to self rather than God. You see, everyone is a bond slave. Everyone's going to serve somebody or something. You're either going to align your will with a good and gracious God who bought you with a great price, or you will serve the cruel taskmaster of sin and selfishness. And we as believers understand that now. We didn't understand it before. We understand the drudgery of being caught up in sin. Turn to Romans chapter 6. The Apostle Paul makes this point clear for believers who are no longer uh, in sin, bondage to sin, because they've been set free. They have died to sin, and we are in Christ. Romans chapter 6. I'd like to read the whole thing, but I'm just going to read part of it. Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are a slave to the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness? We can present ourselves to sin, and we become slaves to that sin. You know right away when you have a bad attitude, you are immediately enslaved unless you confess it, right? You know right away if you start worrying, you are immediately enslaved unless you confess it and are set free. You know right away when you get angry and it's wrong, you're immediately enslaved unless you confess it and set it free, and are set free by the Lord. You see, Jesus made it clear that the one who sins becomes a slave of sin, but if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. We were slaves to sin. We thought we were free. We were free to sin, weren't we? But we were slaves. And now we're slaves to Christ and we're free to righteousness. And he goes on here. But thanks be to God, chapter, Romans 6, 17. 
But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you were committed. You believed the gospel and you were obedient to it. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. That's good, right? And I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity, lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Hey, when you were a sinner enslaved to it, righteousness wasn't an issue, right? Okay? Because you're in sin, right? And he says here, if you're freeing to regard righteousness, therefore what benefit then were you deriving from the things which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And again, when I hear the term slave or servant, bond slaves of the Lord, it just, it just oh, it, it, it strikes us in our flesh. We feel like our freedom is gone. We're going to be enslaved, right? Well, it's different because your master is everything. And our master, Jesus Christ, gave himself for us. He died for us. He loves us. He is good. He is merciful. He is kind. He is gracious. He is loving He is a master who will reward us for our service in him. This is a gracious, wonderful master. Think about, you know, a job where you have a horrible boss versus a wonderful boss. What a difference. What a difference. And we have a wonderful master. You see, when you're a servant, your master is everything. And we are servants of bond, servants of Christ Jesus, if you come into faith. You know, concerning Epaphras, who was called a bond slave twice in Colossians 4, uh, one other pastor writes, Epaphras was a man who was, not at his own, who was not at his own disposal, but a man at his master's, his master's purchase property, bought to serve his master's need, to be in his beck and call for every moment. The slave's sole business was to do as he is told. Christian service, therefore, means first and foremost living out the slave relationship to one's Savior. And in that context, it's, obedience to our savior and it's good for us and it's good and it's wonderful you see all throughout scripture those who are truly saved are seen as servants of the living god it is not a bad thing to be a servant of the living god it is a good thing it is a good thing and there's nothing more blessed in one's life to actually be serving the living god if you want to have joy serve the living god if you want to have joy serve the lord serve yourself if you want hardship trial and trouble you get a little temporal happiness here and there, but it all leads to death. If you want to have joy, give over your will to Christ and serve him. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 10. We see that God's servants are, are described here. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. And again, fight that uh, human fleshy response of seeing the idea of being a servant as a bad thing to Christ. It's a wonderful thing. What a great, wonderful master we have who loves us, who's kind, who's merciful, who's forgiving. Wonderful master. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. And now Israel, what does the Lord require from you? Lord your God require from you. What does he require? 
but to fear the Lord your God. It's to have a right view of Him, to respect and honor and reverence, to walk in all His ways, and to love Him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. That's what He requires. You see, when we come into a relationship with Him, it's not so that we can do our own thing just because we're forgiven and now we've got the guilt removed. No. We've been delivered into His kingdom to serve Him. A little later on in chapter 10 of Deuteronomy, verse 20, You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve Him and cling to Him, you shall swear by His name. He is your praise, He is your God, who has done great and awesome things for you, which your eyes have seen. We serve Him out of a response to what He has done for us. He is a great and gracious and wonderful Merciful Master. Later on, Deuteronomy 11, verse 13, it shall come about if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today, Deuteronomy 11, 13, to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and your soul. All your soul. He will give you rain for your land in its season and early and early late rain. You may gather your grain and your new wine and your oil. He will give grass for your fields. Give, give in your fields, excuse me, he will give grass for your fields, for your cattle, and you shall eat and be satisfied. Beware, lest your hearts be deceived, and you turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Beware, beware. And in Samuel, Samuel's farewell address in First Samuel uh, chapter, actually before that, go to Joshua chapter 24. Joshua 24. And I've shared this with you before, but I knew this word of God, but I wasn't following the Lord. And when the Lord brought his hand, heavy hand upon my life, I knew the truth and he convicted me. And the verse he convicted me with was, choose this day whom you'll serve. Choose this day. And when I chose him, I repented of my sins and trusted in Christ. I knew I was serving myself. I knew I was living for myself. I knew I was sinning. Joshua chapter 24, verse 14. But it's an offer. It's not a command in a sense to, you're not, God doesn't demand that. He'll let you make your choices. Joshua 24, verse 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. And if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers you served who were beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites who's in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I don't think many people in these evangelical churches these days see themselves as servants of the Lord. Maybe people in leadership ministry, they do maybe. I don't know, but it seems like they just come to enjoy the show. And have a little pep talk and then go live their lives the way they did last week. And then come back again for another nice show. Well, the reality is, if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are a servant of the living God. You are a bondservant of a good, gracious God who gave himself for us. He loves you. He's merciful. He's kind. And when you serve him, there's no drudgery in that. There's just joy. There's just joy when you truly submit your heart and will to him. Will you do that? Will you do that? So then, we have a great example from them here. They are bond slaves of Christ Jesus. Paul and Timothy knew who they were. They understood the great privilege 
they had to serve the Lord. And then notice back in our passage, they understood their ultimate they, they, they understood their ultimate purpose, but also they understood their great position. Not only did they understand their purpose as servants, okay? You want to know why you're here? You're here to serve the Lord. And it's, there's joy in it. There's joy in it. And then they understood their position in Christ, that they were saints. Back in our passage, Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus. That's, the, that's what they're doing. That's who they are. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. You see, this world is divided into two groups. There are the saints and the ain'ts, right? There are those who are truly saints and those who who aren't. Now, this word translated saints here, hagios, speaks of, uh, of being sanctified or set apart. It's a derivative of that word in which we get holy. Now, the question to who the saints are has been obscured by man-made, the man-made religion of the Catholic Church. Uh, we should not get our definition of saints from the Catholic definition where they have their so-called sainthood or and their holy fathers. We need to get our definition of saints from Scripture. And here he talks about all the saints who were in Philippi, including overseers and deacons, those who were in Christ Jesus. You see, for example, in the beginning of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, an apostle, called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Saints by calling. And if you know the Corinthian church, he's going to go on later on and say, you got all kinds of trouble here, you got trouble here, you got trouble here, you got trouble here. They were sinners. But in Jesus Christ, they were saints. They were saints. They were set apart. You see, the Lord called us unto salvation through the gospel. And when we responded, we were set apart from sin, sanctified in Christ Jesus, declared righteous. We are saints. And he says, he addresses all the saints in Christ Jesus. Now, we are not called saints because of our behavior. We are called saints because of the reality of who we are in now. We are in Christ Jesus, the Holy and Righteous One. We've had our sins forgiven. We are declared righteous. We are saints by calling. And certainly these Philippians were not called saints because of their behavior, or indeed they would have uh, not been commanded to do all things without complaining and grumbling. Or they wouldn't have been commanded for you and sin to live in harmony, or to be anxious for nothing. They were saints by position. And then God's word calls us to be saints in practice as we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. They were in Christ, all the saints in Christ Jesus. Now this phrase in Christ is so important. There's no way to be righteous and holy apart from being in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. You see, when you repent of your sin and place your faith in Christ Jesus, you are delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. You are redeemed. The payment of your price of your sins is paid by Jesus' death applied to you on the, on, the, on the cross, applied to you. You are baptized, placed into the body of Christ, that spiritual reality, identify with Christ, and then there's a physical one that smears that. You are set apart, sanctified, made holy in Christ. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you, Christ in you, And once separated by sin, you are now together with him, forgiven. You become his possession. 
Uh, we are bought with a great price. We are set apart from sin, and you are united to the very life of God. We are in Christ, and he is holy, and thus we are in position holy. Now, we saw in First Peter that the Lord says, be holy because I am holy. We, what we are in position, the Lord wants us to be in practice. Now, we're not going to get there perfectly until we're in glory, but he wants us to become more and more like Jesus. You see, without Christ, you are in your sins. You are identified by them. But once you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are no longer identified by sin. But you are identified with the sinless, spotless Savior. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's turn there for a second. 1 Corinthians 6. You see, before you were saved, God sees us through our sin. But when we're saved, we're saints. We're set apart. Tremendous reality. Our sin is no longer in the way. We have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Hey, those who are in their sins have not been forgiven by Christ are not going to inherit the kingdom. Don't you know that? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, that's those who have relations apart from marriage, uh, or idolaters, uh, adulterers, that's those who commit adultery, um, effeminate or near homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And I love this phrase, and such some of you were. You were. You used to be in those sins. You were identified by those sins. But notice what he says. But you were washed. What a wonderful thing. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Tremendous reality. We're identified by our sin, whatever it is. All those different spheres of sin. And when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we're washed clean and we are set apart. We are holy in Christ. We are saints. He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We are saints because we are set apart in Christ and he is holy. We are united to him, forgiven in Christ. Are you a saint? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation? If you trust in him, you'll be forgiven of your sins. You'll be forgiven. And you will be declared righteous. You'll be right in God's sight. Holy saints. And so the apostle Paul wants to remind them who he's writing to. To all the saints in Christ Jesus. Those who've been set apart in Christ Jesus. Tremendous, wonderful reality. Are you a saint in Christ Jesus? Are you a saint in Christ Jesus? Then this letter applies to you. Then it applies to you. Well, notice back in our passage, there's an addition to this. And he says here, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus, excuse me, in Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi. That's the, that's the, that's the town they're writing to. Including, or you could say literally with, actually here, with the overseers and deacons. So what can we learn from this? Well, specifically, the church in Philippi had overseers and deacons, right? Plural, it did. And the Apostle Paul personally includes them in this greeting to all the saints, including specifically the overseers and deacons. They are saints, and they are within that context something else, overseers and deacons. They are numbered with the saints. Now, with this in mind, concerning overseers and deacons and their duties, we don't have full time to go into this today, but I want to briefly summarize their roles, because Paul mentions them. Paul mentions them. 
Again, notice the plurality with the overseers and deacons. And so what's an overseer? What's an overseer? Well, it's a term described to describe one who oversees. Episcopos, it speaks of caring for, watching out for, seeing, really looking after. Now, it's interesting in Scripture, the term overseer and elder are interchangeable. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 7 uses them synonymously. You can read that on your own time. Also in 1 Peter 5, along with Acts 20, we see that those who are overseers and elders are to shepherd. So we're going to see. There's good evidence that we see overseer and elder are interchangeable terms. One describing the office, in a sense. One describing the duty, in a sense. But they're interchangeable even in that. So what is the work of overseeing? Well, obviously it has the idea of oversight, watching out for looking after the flock of God, the overseers within the church of Philippi of all the saints in Christ Jesus. They're looking over and watching over the saints in Philippi in Christ Jesus. Now, 1 Timothy 3 reveals that God gives some men, not women, the desire to the office and the work of an overseer. And then we see in Acts chapter 20, 28, his spirit appoints them in the church as we see in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 through the human recognition that those men meet the spiritual qualities revealed in those passages. Specifically that the men must exhibit the character of Christ as revealed in those passages and must hold fast the faithful word that they can feed and protect and lead and watch over the flock of God, the church. Indeed, in Hebrews chapter 13, 1 Peter 5, Acts 20, 1 Thessalonians 5, clearly reveal that overseers, or what overseers are to do. Specifically, they are to shepherd the flock, watching over their souls, and they are those in charge over them, looking after, guarding the flock, feeding them with the word of God. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13, Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, I'll start with verse 7. Remember those who led you. They were leading them. You gotta be, now, you, you, you gotta submit to be led, by the way. Remember those who led you, who what? Spoke the word of God to you. And considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Imitate their faith. Go down to verse 17 of chapter 13 of Hebrews. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls, as those who will give an account, let them do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. We see in 1 Peter 5, they had a shepherd, the flock of God, awaiting the chief shepherds and his reward. We see in 1 Thessalonians 5, they are to, that the body is to appreciate those who diligently labor among you, exercising oversight. We see that. Those who have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. You highly esteem them in love because of their work. Their work is being in charge over you and giving you instruction. That's what it is. First Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13. We know from Acts 20, and you can read this on your own time, that they are to shepherd the flock because there are threats to the flock from within and without. So then we see that elders specifically are to do these things. We also see that within elders, there are those who have different giftings. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Within elders and overseers. Again, synonymous. 1 Timothy 5. 
Verse 17. Let the elders who rule well or, or lead. Let the elders who lead or rule well. That means they're doing a good job. Says be considered worthy of a double honor. Especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. There are elders who watch over the flock. They meet the qualifications. They're watching over spiritual condition. But there are also those who work hard, especially at preaching and teaching. And I believe those are those who have a gift of pastor teacher who are also elders. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So we live in a society these days, brothers and sisters, where no one wants to submit to anybody. This rebellious attitude has entered into the church. I see it. You probably see it. People do not want to voluntarily submit to their leaders. Yet Christ is the head of the church, and he has ordained the relationship within the church for their good. For their good. So if you have this attitude, then you are rebelling against Christ, because he is the one, through his word, who says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they watch out for your souls. Right? And obviously, if you're going to submit to them, they're going to tell you something, right? <laughs> right? So with that in mind, in a nutshell, elders are overseers, they're shepherds, they're those men who in the Holy Spirit has created a desire and they've been appointed through the qualifications of the Word of God to look out, to protect, to lead and feed uh, the flock to the unadulterated Word of God. They watch out for the spiritual condition of the flock. There are spiritual leaders who lead by example of faith, yielding completely to the head of the church who is Jesus Christ. So then, Paul to and Timothy to the, the, the saints in Philippi in Christ Jesus and or with the overseers. And notice he includes back in our passage, including the overseers and deacons. This is a troublesome passage for some Baptist churches because they don't have overseers. They have only deacons. Now, I'm just being joking here. There are a lot of good Baptist churches that are salt in the word that have one little problem that I have. They call their leaders deacons rather than overseers. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But here there are two different groups in the Bible. There are the overseers who are leaders, who rule, who share the word of God and watch over your souls, who have charge over you. And there are also deacons. Now this word deacon simply means servant. That's exactly what it means. And there are two words that were not translated in our English translations. They were not translated, but transliterated. And by the way, that makes it difficult to understand them because they're transliterated. One is deacon. Or one is, so we have the word deacon. It means servant. Literally servant. The other one is baptized. It means to, to identify with place into. They were transliterated just from, right over from the Greek. Baptizo and diakonos, right? And so we can have a misunderstanding to what a deacon is. But here specifically, the term deacon means simply servant. That's what it means. Those who are watching over, overseers and the servants. And these are recognized. Because everyone should be serving, right? We're all bond servants, right? But there is a special, evidently recognized class of servants called deacons. They are recognized servants who have meet the qualifications of this recognition in the Word of God. And again, as I mentioned earlier, there are some Baptist churches who have, who have kind of skewed this by calling their elders basically deacons, so then they require them to meet their qualities of leaders rather than just those of servants. So we're going to see. Deacons do not lead, they serve. 
they meet the physical temporal needs of the body of Christ as, as they lead, as, as led by Christ, according to his strength alone. Turn to 1 Timothy 3, and we have the qualifications for deacons. For servants, recognized servants in the church. 1 Timothy 3, verse 8. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. It's the faith in Jesus Christ, by the way. And let those also first be tested. You don't just say, hmm, that looks like a good deacon. Okay, let's appoint that person. There's a testing that goes on. There's a testing. Let them first be tested. Then let them serve, let them deacon as deacons, or let them serve as servants. If they are beyond reproach. Women, and now it adds in women in this context. Women, likewise, be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be husbands of only one wife, one woman, men, and good managers of their children and their households. For those who have served well as deacons, those who have deaconed as deacons, obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Deacons are recognized servants. Recognized servants. Men and women. And, and because we see men and women, they don't lead because women are not to lead or exercise authority. It is a serving position completely. And we see an example of a woman who is a servant, who is a deacon. Turn to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. Verse 1. And notice the description that Paul has of her. It's pretty awesome, by the way. I commend to you our sister Phoebe. She's a sister in the Lord, okay? Who is a diakonos, or servant of the church, which is in Sancria. She's a deacon of the church there. She's a recognized servant. That you receive her in the Lord in a worthy manner of the saints, against saints, right? And that you help her in whatever manner she may have need of you, for she herself has also what? Been a helper of many, and of myself as well. Recognized servants are helpers. They serve the Lord Jesus Christ by serving the body of Christ. Deacons are recognized servants who meet the qualities of 1 Timothy chapter 3. And what do they do? They help, they serve. And here we have two deacons, man and a woman. And they serve, and they've been faithful so far by God's grace. I have never had an issue where I've asked something to do, and they said, well, you know, and, and they've always just done whatever I've asked in the Lord. They've helped me tremendously. Great help. Great help. And I believe there are other people here who are deacons, I believe, that God is testing and seeing that they would be recognized. So within the church, there are these offices, in a sense, of overseers and deacons. Recognized. You know who they are. Recognized. Recognized. So with this in mind, we've seen that Paul and Timothy were a bond slaves of Christ. They were saints set apart for his work. And Paul desired for them to, to recognize that, to understand that. But notice, not only do we see the privilege that we have as believers to serve Christ, not only do we see the great position we have as saints, lastly notice we see his great provision. 
this great provision. Back to Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Verse 2, here's the greeting. Grace to you and peace from from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the greeting. This is a greeting. Some would say it's just a generic greeting, the standard Greek portion, grace to you, the standard Hebrew portion, peace, which on a surface level is true, but I believe it goes much farther than that, inspired by the Spirit. Well, what does he mean by grace? Grace is God's unmerited favor in the person of Christ. It is that which we could not do for ourselves. It is his mercy and grace. It's his, it's his favor towards us. In Scripture, we see it is none other than an attribute of the living God. Attribute of the living God. First Peter 5.10, he is the God of all grace. And we see throughout Scripture that this characteristic describes the Lord. He was full of grace and truth. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Jesus Christ personifying the grace of God. It is summed up in the personal work of Jesus Christ, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Grace is what God does for sinful man through his Son, which he cannot earn, does not deserve, and will never merit. And it is how we are to function daily. We're to function by his grace, and that's God's desire, grace to you, that you would function by his grace on a daily basis, relying on him you know, we're not adequate to consider anything is coming from ourselves. Apart from him, we can do nothing. His grace is sufficient. His power is perfected in weakness. God wants his saints to function by his grace. I can't do it, but I trust you. You're faithful. You'll do it through me. Your grace is sufficient. The Apostle Paul functioned by the grace of God. He clearly functioned by You can look in 1 Corinthians 15. He spoke by God's grace. And this is God's desire for us in this greeting. Grace to you. Grace to you. We saw in 2 Peter, grace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Grace to you. Do you see God's grace in the person of Christ as your provision for life? He's all you need. Trust in Jesus. He's gracious. He's merciful. He will, by his grace, provide for you. He will, by his grace, lead you and direct you and take care of you. And guess what? There's the result of grace, which is peace. Grace to you and peace. Peace never comes before grace. You see, we were at enmity with God, and when we trusted in Jesus Christ, we were justified and we had peace with God. We're at peace now. But yet personally, in our day-to-day actions, the Lord Jesus made it clear, my, my peace I leave with you, right? Not as the world gives. He is the God of peace, Philippians chapter 4. He will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus with his peace. If we rely on his grace, we trust in him. We depend on him. We take our request to him. We're thankful to him. You see... He is the God of peace, the God of peace. Grace and peace don't come from experience, don't come from worship, do not come from going to church, do not come from service or from a book. Notice our passage says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what God wants for his people, 
This is Paul's inspired desire for the Philippian church and for you and I, saints. Grace to you and peace. May you function in God's grace. May you have the peace that results from walking rightly with the living God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word, and I thank you for this introduction. And Lord, I thank you for your desire that we receive your grace and that it's multiplied in our lives, that we walk in the context of total dependence in your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord God. And Father, we thank you that when we are right with you, we have peace. And you are the God of all peace. And that's your desire for us, to walk in the context of your peace. Father, I also thank you for the great privilege it is to serve you, to be your servants, servants of a great and wonderful Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. I thank you that we've been set apart, that we are saints by calling, that our sins have been forgiven. And Lord, I pray we wouldn't forget this little greeting in our day-to-day lives, that we would allow you to minister through us by your grace, and that we would rest in your peace. Pray this in Jesus' name.